After two years of a fully online event, we're excited to be back in Liverpool with a refreshed Congress. As always, the event will offer three days of education in CPD with a programme that showcases the most cutting-edge content for a multidisciplinary audience that addresses the medical, scientific, educational and management issues in the diverse fields of diagnostic imaging, oncology and radiological sciences. Alongside this is a large professional exhibition of the latest state-of-the-art equipment, services and technology available in the industry. With the return of in-person congress comes an opportunity to refresh and rebuild the event with an emphasis on networking, practical and hands-on sessions, case study and discussion-led content, content for trainees, generalist and skills mix sessions and an interactive exhibition. So join us, RadChat, at UKIO Congress in Liverpool, 4th and 6th of July. Registrations now open. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 50. I feel like we need some applause or clapping there. Um, <laughs> my name is Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Zoe Merchant, who talked about prehabilitation and rehabilitation and setting up a service in Greater Manchester. If you haven't had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Jonathan McNulty, who will be discussing his career, working in academia, research and his recent award. So hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Hello there, Jay and Joe and Naaman. Delighted uh, to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation and congratulations on your 50th podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. So for anyone within the professions of radiography, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as you said, my name is Jonathan McNulty. I'm a diagnostic radiographer by background, um, working over here in Dublin in Ireland. Um, I'm currently working in University College Dublin, which is the largest uh, university in Ireland, uh, where I'm, I'm an associate professor uh, in the university. So very much involved in radiography education, but also in the education of uh, medical students and, and across lots of other programs as well. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your career journey? What, what first made you want to become a diagnostic radiographer? Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose it, it's it's been a long journey. Um, I think when I was in school, in, in secondary school, before doing uh, my school leaving exams, our leaving certificate here, like the A-levels uh, in the UK system, um, I was always interested in healthcare. Uh, and, and I was quite sure I wanted to do something in healthcare. Um, at the time, getting into radiography in Ireland, either diagnostic radiography uh, or, or into uh, uh, therapeutic radiography or radiation therapy, as it's now known here in Ireland, um, was challenging. There was very limited places. There was only one diagnostic program and one uh, therapeutic program uh, as well. Um, so, and I think in the diagnostic program, there was only 20 places at the time. So the whole, you know, there's a huge demand uh, for any healthcare program. So a lot of Irish uh, school leavers end up training in the UK in various healthcare profession programs. 
So I applied for diagnostic radiography, uh, didn't get a place uh, in Dublin, unfortunately. I had also applied through the UK system and had been offered a place in the University of Bradford. Um, so I was trying to make the tough decision whether I, I moved to Bradford. I was quite lucky to have my mother is from Leeds originally and I have family in Leeds as well. So it, it wouldn't be such a, a, a massive jump for me. Um, but uh, I, I was fortunate then uh, when I was considering between going to the UK or else my option was to do engineering uh, here here in Dublin. Um, I got a late offer for radiography in Dublin, in University College Dublin. So that's where I started out. And I think what interested me about radiography was I think it's it's the classic one. You know, it's the, the patient care aspect. Um, it's the, the understanding of the human body on the diagnostic side, which is also relevant on the therapeutic side, but also the technology as well, you know, and that diverse technology that we use. So I think uh, I thought it could be an interesting and exciting uh, program and career. And I had spent some time in uh, uh, imaging departments as well doing some kind of uh, work experience uh, while I was in school. So that's what led me to the program. I, I studied radiography in, here in University College Dublin. It's a four-year BSc honours program, a diagnostic radiography program. Uh, came out of that program, really enjoyed it, and started working clinically as a diagnostic radiographer in Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, which is one of the largest uh, university teaching hospitals in Dublin, and our National Renal Transplant Centre, National Neurosurgical Centre. Uh, and I was very lucky in, in my time in Beaumont to work across many different areas of diagnostic imaging and work with some fantastic colleagues as well. Uh, I ultimately specialized in interventional radiology and magnetic resonance imaging uh, and did quite a lot of neuroimaging and neurointerventional uh, radiology as well. And, and I suppose it was at that stage that it sparked my interest in um, the training side. I was involved in those areas in training new colleagues as well, uh, and also involved in training students from University College Dublin who were rotating through Beaumont Hospital uh, as well. And it was also my, my probably my first exposure after to research after I did an undergraduate project uh, in, in my degree, but then getting involved in clinical research studies as well. So I think actually, it was, gave me that that mix of, I suppose, the, the clinical work, working directly with patients, the research opportunities and the teaching opportunities uh, in, in the hospital. And I suppose that's what led me to where I find myself now. Um, an opportunity arose to take up a half-time lecturing position. Uh, I was fortunate to get a secondment um, uh, from Beaumont. So I kept working half-time in Beaumont, half-time in the university. Um, Probably both my bosses at the time got a lot more of half my time out of me. Uh, so it, it was a challenging two years where I did did that. But it really got me immersed on the academic side. And I suppose I was fortunate to have some great mentors on the clinical side and the academic side. Uh, and then when an opportunity came up to move full time to an academic role in the university, I, I did that. And I think that was back, yeah, it was back in autumn 2005. So you know 17 years ago or so uh, was was when I made that move full-time to the university and and I haven't really looked back then you know it's been great opportunities since then. You missed out a crucial part so you recently became an influencer can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah yes yes and and actually you know I uh, of course it, it was an honour Um, the organisation Ant Mini Europe 
um, um, uh, the media organization that work around a lot of areas of radiology and medical imaging um, have some annual awards. Uh, and in Europe, there's the Ant Mini Europe Euro Minis Awards. So there's a new category this year for the most influential uh, radiographer. Um, it's through a nomination process. So originally, you know, just to, to, to get named on that short list of um, nominees was, you know, you know, quite an honour, I suppose, and 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 it was nice, I suppose. I I I'd hoped that in my career, and particularly over the last ten years, in different roles I've had, and particularly at the European level, that I I have been able to make a difference in different ways for the profession. So to get that recognition initially was nice. Then to go through the kind of formal um, voting, and there was an adjudication process, and and to find out that I was. Um, uh, a finalist and and joining uh, Charlotte Beardmore from the Society of College of Radiographers, their director of professional policy, who was a very good friend of mine. And I've worked very closely with Charlotte at the European level. When I was president of the European Federation of Radiographers Society, Charlotte was the vice president and went on to become president. So just being there alongside Charlotte, who I really look up to and respect and has done so much not only for the therapeutic radiography community, but also for the diagnostic community. So for radiography and radiographers in general, uh, it was just amazing. Um, so I think even that was a little bit of a, I, I'd say I was slightly embarrassed, but then to go one step further and to to, to be the ultimate recipient of the award, uh, I, I suppose was touching. And I suppose what has been most Joe, amazing for me is is the response I've seen through you know just through social media and different channels and the messages I've been getting the emails I've been getting from lots of people of course lots of people I know people I've had the privilege of working with over the last 20 years but then people I I don't know they they know me and just messages you know indicating you know why they were delighted to hear this award and i think that you know as well as getting a nice little plaque and the honor of the award some of those messages and and realizing that okay you know i was hoping i was making a difference but maybe i am because the, well, these people are reassuring me that i have done something good for my profession where is your plaque kept jonathan <laughs> it's not here with me now, but it is in. It, it didn't make it onto the mantelpiece in the house. Um, I, I think my wife, so with the various things I've collected over the years from different international visits, and you know, giving keynotes and getting nice gifts, they're all on a nice shelving unit in my office in the university, which I'm not in at the moment, so I can't show you that. But it is proudly displayed on that shelf in my office. I love it. I, it's you could just tell when your kids are older and they're all on Instagram and you can just say, yeah, I'm an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had an amazing career today. And obviously as part of that career, you've been heavily engaged in research. Can you tell us about mm. some of your research interests and, and publications that you've had? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And, and I, I suppose I've been quite fortunate with my research, obviously moving from doing research in my undergraduate, which I feel is a really important starting point for anyone. And sometimes actually that can scare people off research. And, and I think that's something for those of us in education who are getting our students engaged in research. We have to try and find a way of making it less scary at that stage because we want them when they move into their clinical careers to stay engaged in research in, in some ways. They don't all have to be leading research, but you know, as a profession, I feel really strongly and not just in radiography, but for all healthcare professionals, if we want to call ourselves professionals, we have to 
engage with research. We have to help build and help contribute towards our own evidence base. So I suppose I've been involved with research for a long time. I have been quite fortunate that I've had some diverse research interests. I suppose now my research activities will be around the areas of uh, image quality, radiation protection and dose optimization would be one area. Um, I've also continued to do a lot of research in neuroimaging in particular, which is a love I brought with me from my time in Beaumont Hospital. Um, also a lot of um, research related to uh, professional activities uh, and also educational research as well. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a passionate teacher and a passionate educator and I think we've a lot to learn from what we do and how we can do it better. And again, that needs to be evidence-based uh, as well. So I suppose currently some of the areas I'm working in um, uh, I suppose in the area of radiation protection, um, two big projects would be um, European Commission funded projects. One that only closed a few weeks ago was what we call the, the Medirad project. And what Medirad is, it's a project looking at the medical applications of ionizing radiation. And it's not just in diagnostic imaging or radiology, it's across nuclear medicine and also radiation oncology as well. It, it was a very big project, a consortium with over 30 international partners that's 30 different organizations and multiple collaborators in each of those organizations so it was a huge project but we're very lucky to receive 10 million euros in in funding from the european commission for that uh, and and there's been many different aspects to that but they're all based around how we can do better in terms of our uh, research around medical applications of ionizing radiation. So it spanned lots of different areas and there's been a huge amount of publications coming out of that project. And, and related to that, another European Commission project and um, you know uh, the the acronym for well it's it's Euromed Rock and Roll is the name of the project so a bit of rock and roll in there for it as well so it's one of the best named projects and I can't take any credit for that title but uh, some of my colleagues can um, but the Euromed Rock and Roll project is ongoing at the moment it's another European Commission funded project at three million uh, and it kind of grew out of some of the early stages of the Medirad project and what the Euromed Rock and Roll project now is about setting up um, a strategic research agenda for ionizing radiation and radiation protection research uh, across Europe and um, putting a framework or a roadmap in place for how the European Commission and how we as researchers might move towards the, uh, the objectives uh, that we have and also establishing uh, the required education and training to make sure we have enough highly trained researchers not just in research institutions and academic institutions, but on the clinical workforce as well to address those challenges in, in Europe over the next 10 years. So that's on the ionizing radiation side. Um, looking to radiotherapy or um, as well, I've been fortunate through my role in the European Federation of Radiographers Societies. We are a partner in what is called the Safe Europe Project which is about the safe and free exchange of EU radiotherapy professionals. And um, the EFRS are one of the big partners in that project. I have been lucky, even though I'm not a radiotherapy, a therapeutic radiographer, I've been you know, fortunate to lead a number of work packages and lead a lot on, on, on the, of the activity in that. Charlotte Beardmore is involved. We have radiotherapy colleagues, other colleagues from the UK, Ricardo Kine, Helen McNair are involved as well, who some of your podcast listeners uh, will know well uh, and also Eric Sundquist um, 
uh, from Norway as well. So we have a very good EFRS team there. Uh, and we've been looking at advanced practice in therapeutic radiography, digital skills, uh, the circular economy, green skills, uh, and and getting hearing the patient voice uh, in, in, in that project as well. So that's been a really exciting project. Um, we're having our final uh, event of that project uh, next week in Copenhagen. We're having a conference, uh, which is, will be a hybrid conference. It's online, freely accessible. So anyone who wants to look at the Safe Europe webpage and they'll be able to join uh, that conference, which happens just before the ESTRO Radiation Oncology uh, Conference uh, as well. Uh, and then maybe finally, I'll just mention um, the, the neuroimaging side. Um, for the past maybe six or seven years, I've been uh, involved in a fantastic project involving stroke uh, and looking at the biomarkers of stroke and largely imaging-based biomarkers of stroke using uh, magnetic resonance imaging, uh, computed tomography, and also positron emission tomography. Uh, and that's been another groundbreaking project, which began out of a Dublin-based project using our Dublin clinical sites, Dublin collaborators, and now is a global project as well. And we have a lot, have had a lot of high-impact publications in journals such as neurology and stroke and radiology journals uh, arising uh, out of that as well. Uh, and, and then if, if I may just take the liberty of mentioning one further one, uh, we're another European project which is looking at research ethics. Um, together with uh, Chris, Dr. Christina Malmatenio from uh, City University of London, who initiated the project, uh, myself and other collaborators across Europe and with contribution from the EFRS, have recently been doing uh, what is the Radiography Research Ethics uh, Standards for Europe project, where we're looking at a snapshot of, as radiographers, irrespective of uh, the branch of radiography we practice in, what is our knowledge, our understanding of ethics associated with research? What do we see as the challenges in our countries? Are there any links between the level of education and our understanding uh, of it? Um, between different branches of the profession and so on. And that's been a really exciting project uh, to work on as well. So I think just, I've been very fortunate to have quite diverse um, uh, research projects and to be able to continue that through my career. I was gonna say, you're doing quite a lot. There's lots of different aspects, isn't there? Which I think is incredible. Um, just for anyone listening, so you talked about receiving a grant for 3 million, 10 million euros, etc. What involves actually applying for a research grant? Just because yeah. I've, I've learned this the hard way recently, <laughs> applying for a College of Radiography Industry Partnership one. It's a lot more work than I thought it would be. <laughs> it's not really something you can just do in your evenings, is it? No. Grant applications are a huge amount of work. Um, a lot of researchers spend a huge amount of time writing grants. Um, many spend a lot more time than, than I do. Um, you know, you have people working in academia where their, their roles are largely research focused. Whereas I suppose I'm in a leadership position in the university. And so I have a lot of leadership administration as well as my teaching responsibilities. But yeah, you're right, uh, Naaman, the, 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 the grant process can be quite complex. Um, you know, lots of different funding organizations out there. They all have funding available. There's often great opportunities for funding involving uh, medical imaging or involving uh, radiation therapy, radiation oncology as well, but all highly competitive. You know, and I think many of them have, you know, kind of 10% success rates and things like that are, 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 are quoted. 
So a huge amount of work goes into the grant applications. It's definitely something you can't do at the last minute. So I suppose what lots of us find ourselves, unfortunately, sometimes we find ourselves getting last minute submissions and you can be very lucky and maybe be successful. But often the planning that goes into grant writing happens you know, at least six months in advance of a deadline. You need to bring together good collaborators, you know, trying to do it on your own, like anything in research or you know, even in our professional careers, we work as part of teams, but uh, bringing together strong colleagues you know who who can come together take on some of the responsibility you can you know pull all those expertise together that's the only way to do it. doing it on your own is a nightmare i've been there and the disappointment when you've put in weeks and weeks of work and you're rejected I, I won't say you'd get over it immediately, but you know, I suppose at this point, it, it's like uh, research papers. When you sub submit papers to a journal, I have a lot of rejections there. You know, I have a huge amount of rejections and some of those rejections do get on to go on to get published elsewhere. Same with the grant applications. If you're not successful first time round, reapply again next year or look at another funding agency where maybe there's a better fit as well. I think it's what my grandma would say, character building. That's what it is, the whole process. <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard, but I think you have to do it. You know, you learn from your mistakes or the feedback you get is always fantastic from the people doing. I mean, they're doing it in their own time normally to look at the grant and give you that feedback. Um, you said you exactly. do some work with sort of the therapeutic radiography side. Obviously, we've had a bit of a, well, a bit of a slip of tongue from you. You almost called us radiotherapists. So <laughs> radiation therapists is probably the more common term across the world exactly, we're called yes. therapeutic radiographers do you think that we're being left behind if we're using therapeutic radiographer as a title so i do find that whenever i look at my colleagues on linkedin they're all called radiation therapists but uh, we all have the mm -hmm. same badge <laughs> absolutely and and what we call ourselves and actually I, I know people who are therapeutic radiographers, and, and this is a big thing. And I know it's something that you know, the Society and College of Radiographers and in the UK, there's a big push. It's about professional identity, calling yourself a diagnostic radiographer, calling yourself a radiotherapy radiographer. Obviously, here in my country, and this is part of the reason for the slip of my tongue, we, we, you know, I am a radiographer. Um, and originally, we, we did have you know, therapeutic radiographers now the professional title that's recognized here is radiation therapist now at the european level and i suppose that's where a lot of my experience i i have worked nationally i was a member of our professional body i served two three-year terms uh, many years ago now on the national council of the irish institute of radiographers and radiation therapy as it's now called um, but more recently in the european role obviously the european federation of radiographers societies represents all radiographers, whether they work in nuclear medicine, medical imaging, or in radiation oncology as well. And we, again, feel strongly. The word radiographer is the term we have been lobbying and pushing because we are falling behind other professions. A physiotherapist is a physiotherapist is a physiotherapist. A nurse is a nurse is a nurse. A doctor, medical doctor is a medical doctor. Whereas we have so many different titles there's a lot of disagreement on what would be appropriate or not. So the EFRS member organization, so now the EFRS represents 47 national societies, 67 educational institutions. Many of those national uh, societies are responsible for therapeutic radiographers as, as they are for diagnostic. Likewise, those educational institutions. There is agreement on the use of the term radiographer. And then whether that's therapeutic radiographer or diagnostic radiographer or whatever it might be, or nuclear medicine radiographer uh, as well. 
So, but I'm really conscious that, you know, there's other European organizations that are pushing for other terms. When it comes to what is recognized officially at the European level, the European uh, Skills, Competencies and Occupations Group of the European Commission, um, there was a bit of a, a mess around this for many years. And, and before we even get into the title, I think it's important for some of your listeners, and many people won't know this, that it was only four years ago that radiographers, irrespective of the branch of the profession, were recognized as professionals at the European level. Up until four years ago, May 2018, we were recognized as assistant professionals or technicians. So we were in a lower category. Now that's quite important because then when you look at the definitions of a healthcare professional and the definitions of a technician, they're very, very different in terms of scope of practice, place in the team, responsibilities, etc. So one of the big jobs the EFRS has done over a decade is lobbying and working very hard to correct that. So, so that has been changed. So we're now recognized um, at that level. Now outside of Europe with the International Labour Organization, unfortunately radiographers are still in, because there isn't an accepted title at the global level, we're in the technician category. And there is work ongoing with the International Labour Organization involving the European Federation and the International Society uh, uh, for, for Radiographers and Radiological Technologists on that. But, but back to the titles and therapeutic radiographer, I mean, this has come up as recently as this week and in some engagement and interactions I've been having, and I'm always very careful. Uh, and it's something, and, and occasionally you slip up on the words like that because you're thinking different audiences, different terms as well, and I know there's sensitivities uh, out there. Are we doing ourselves any, you know, disfavor or, you know, doing down our profession? I think potentially by causing confusion within our profession. So if you have professionals in one country using different titles, that is causing confusion. It's causing confusion for other healthcare professionals looking at us. Um, it's causing confusion for our patients and it's causing confusion for the public. So I think in terms of our professional identity, you know, trying to address these things is, is really, really important. And, um, you know, it, it's something that at the European level continues to cause challenges as well, because there are other European organizations that are not happy with the title radiographer. So irrespective of whether it's a, a radiotherapy radiographer or a therapeutic radiographer, they, they don't like the word radiographer there as well. So radiation therapist or radiation therapy technologist uh, might be accepted uh, by those. And they have worked with the European Commission to get the title uh, radiation therapist uh, accepted. So radiation therapist and therapeutic radiographer and radiotherapy radiographer, they're all now recognized and sorry i should say uh, radiation therapy technologist technologist and radio so all of those are recognized at the european level now unfortunately those without the title radiographer in them have only been recognized at the lower level at the assistant professor level so there's been a little bit of a you know a, 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 a bit more work needs to be done now the title has been in there so work has been done to get radiation therapist added as a recognized professional qualification at the european level but unfortunately, we now work needs to be done to get it to the professional level. So this is it's a topic we I'm sure you've talked with other guests about this. And it's I know there's been a lot of discussion in the UK, but it's not unique to the UK. If we look at the professional title for radiographers from the EFRS member organizations, there's over 60 different titles 
Now, that's obviously lots of different languages, but if you translated them all into English, there's probably 60 different versions of what we're calling ourselves as radiographers. So it's it's complicated. It's incredible how many different terms there are. It's, it's no surprise, is it, when patients go, oh, my nurse was lovely. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, or if you know a little bit more about your area, they call you a doctor, won't they? Or a doctor nurse. <laughs> I think it's interesting with the advancing roles. So obviously in diagnostic side, you have reporting radiographers now doing you know, an incredible role, which is really needed. Do you think, obviously that from a diagnostic perspective, sorry, but then in the therapeutic side, we have consultant radiographers as well who can consent patients, etc. Do you think that might be the next kind of stage? I know some of these roles have been around for a few years, but perhaps that would be the next step. Um, and I don't know how that works in other European countries, to be honest. Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, the UK has been leading the way when it comes to advanced practice. And, and we know that. And we know, I suppose, on the diagnostic side, there is a clear reason for that. Uh, and I think that was the shortage of radiologists. It presented an opportunity, you know, more than 15 years ago. Uh, and I suppose there's been great work in the UK. And the important thing is there's the three pillars are there in the framework in the UK. And obviously, education and training is a huge part of advanced practice and consultant practice. And I think uh, therapeutic radiography has obviously been through the Society and College of Radiographers representing both branches. Joe, advanced practice and consultant practice has come in. There's some amazing examples in the UK of therapeutic radiographers in consultant roles who are leading their own services as well. And Joe, there's lots of different names I could mention and people I, I don't even know personally, but people who I've just come across over the years, read their work, which has been published in the journal, um, seen them present at conferences or followed them on Twitter and things like that to, to find out what they're doing. But, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities in other countries. A lot of co countries, they do look to the UK and think, yeah, we, we need that in our country. But that's not always the case, because if you take the radiographer reporting on the diagnostic side, or indeed you could have a therapeutic radiographer who's reporting images uh, in advance, you know, as part of treatment planning, etc. Um, but... It, it, it's not one size fits all. And I, I, I always harp say this and, and some people in some countries get a bit frustrated when I say this uh, because there's a huge drive for reporting radiographers. But in some of those countries where they're pushing and they're trying to train people, there's actually too many radiologists. It's not that there's a shortage of radiologists. So rather than investing all the time and effort in an area where there's a brick wall that they're not being able to engage with the professional societies for radiologists and get them on board because it needs to be done collaboratively same way in uh, therapeutic radiography you work very closely uh, with the radiation oncologists and uh, and with the medical physicists as well it, it has to be kind of a collaborative approach to it they could refocus on there's lots of other areas of advanced practice but I think there's this fixation on the diagnostic side with reporting. And sometimes there is a need for it. It could really enhance services, but not always as well. So I think we need to look broader. And I think that's what we're seeing actually on the therapeutic side through that Safe Europe project, which I mentioned, and, and one of the work packages looking at advanced practice. I've, I've learned so much through that project about therapeutic radiography and about the breadth of roles 
that therapeutic radiographers are working in at an advanced level. And we've run a webinar series where we've been delighted to have a number of therapeutic radiographers um, uh, speaking about those advanced roles. And just to plug those webinars, because they're freely available, I, I, I think in the last two years, we've had over, I think it's close to 30,000 people have engaged with the EFRS webinar series. And then more recently, there has been those Safe Europe webinars. They're all freely available. They're all recorded, so you can go to them anytime. Uh, and people can find them just by going to, um, I'll get it wrong now, but I think it's efrs.eu forward slash webinars. And you'll find the archive there and, and great stuff on, on advanced practice and lots of stuff for therapeutic radiographers too. That sounds amazing. And we'll definitely link it with the podcast. Jonathan, just a very quick question to follow up. You mentioned obviously being fixated on reporting radiographers. I've got to admit that was me right there. I didn't realise there are other advanced roles in diagnostic side. What other roles are there? On, on the diagnostic side, well, one example is interventional radiology. Uh, so there's a lot uh, of advanced practitioners and consultant practitioners uh, working in interventional radiology or indeed interventional cardiology, where they're you know performing some of the procedures as well, whether that's under ultrasound guidance uh, or fluoroscopic guidance. So that can be drainages, line insertions, um, angiograms, you know, so lots of different opportunities uh, there as well. There's radiographer-led discharge as well, which has been introduced. Um, so again, that does fit in a little bit, obviously, with the reporting, but going one step further as well. Um, also, a, a big thing is prescribing as well. And you know, whether it's prescribing um, contrast agents for a diagnostic examination or prescribing drugs associated with a therapeutic procedure or just broader than that you know lots of other opportunities again there are radiographers in the uk and elsewhere who, who are doing that and are in prescribing roles as well so i think there's lots of things out there it's about looking at your service and rather than saying oh well in this university in another or in this hospital in another country they're doing this look at the service in your center think of where the roadblocks are in that service think of the things that are limiting you know the number of cases the efficiency of those cases the quality where the safety issues are arising is there anything that you could do by shifting roles changing roles and sometimes it's just role shifting or task shifting sometimes it's role development sometimes it's advanced practice or sometimes it may even lead to consultant but i think you have to look because every institution their patients are different their workflow is different their needs are different so interesting thank you So one of your very many titles is Editor-in-Chief. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that actually means and also about the journal? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So, Joe, so I've been fortunate since January. I was appointed, uh, I was trusted by the Society and College of Radiographers as the owners of the journal as their new Editor-in-Chief, taking over from um, one of your colleagues in Sheffield Hallam University, Joe, uh, Professor Julie Nightingale. Um, before that, I worked as an associate editor, I think for just about six years, I was an associate editor with the journal. And before that, I was a reviewer and an author. And actually, one of the first things I remember as a student back in my days many years ago uh, was looking at not only a copy of Synergy as a student member of the Society and College of Radiographers at the time, but also a copy of the journal as well. So I suppose I've been aware of the journal uh, for a long time. 
So officially the journal as well, and I think it's important to let your listeners know as well, um, the title is Radiography. It's published by Elsevier, as I said, owned by the Society and College of Radiographers. But um, the, the, it, it is the, inter, the international journal for diagnostic imaging and radiation therapy as well. So again, this is something for our international audience, maybe more so than, than the audience in the UK. They, they often perceive it as being a diagnostic radiography journal because the word radiog the title radiography. But we're certainly open for business uh, to the therapeutic radiography community and indeed wider re readership beyond our profession. Uh, so we have a lot of great content uh, in the journal as well. And in fact, I'd encourage um, any of your listeners who, who want to look at the journal to go to the journal webpage. We've also published for the therapeutic radiography community together with one of the associate editors, Dr. Nick Curtier from Cardiff University, um, in our latest issue, issue two um, of this year, uh, we published an editorial, which I suppose it's a call out to to all therapeutic radiographers letting them know what the journal has to offer them and how we want them to engage with us whether that's as readers reviewers authors etc uh, as well so i've been you know it's a privilege it's one of the i've been very lucky to have been appointed or elected to different roles in my career so far and this is one i, I you know I, i'm really proud of as well looking at the past editors-in-chief who've gone before me. I, I think it really is a, a flagship journal as well. I mentioned already the importance for us as a profession of building our own professional evidence base. Of course, publishing in the radiography journal is one way that we can disseminate the great work that's been doing. And it's been really pleasing to see the growth in recent years. And I suppose my task now is to continue that growth look at new opportunities for the journal, look at how we can better engage with, with, with all uh, areas of the, the radiography family, but also beyond that with other professional groups as well. And also look at ways we can engage with our patients and with our public through the, uh, and with the public through the journal as well. You talked about being a reviewer. Um, so I think, I'm not sure many people will know what that means. So, you know, you can. Oh, you don't yes. have to be an associate professor to do it as well. And you can become a reviewer for a journal. What? How do you? How do you do that? Absolutely. So we 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 kind of. There's no formal appointment system. We regularly get people contact us in the journal or contact one of the editors saying, "I'm I'm interested in learning more about being a reviewer." Well, first thing I'd guide them to is the home page of the journal. It's just many different ways. Google Radiography Journal, but it's RadiographyOnline.com. And um, at the bottom of that homepage, we have a section for reviewers and there's some guides there and resources. And they're designed to help inform people what peer reviewing involves. Also some training resources for novice peer reviewers as well. So we're a peer review journal. So that means that when somebody submits their research, be it a, a, a literature review article, a technical note or some original research, um, it goes through, first of all, the editors review it to make sure it aligns with the aims and scopes of the journal, meets a certain standard. Then we will assign it to, uh, or I, as, as, as editor-in-chief, will assign it to one of the associate editors. And from there, it goes on to some peer reviewers. And the role of the peer reviewers, and it's a double-blind peer review process, so the reviewers don't know the name or the institution of the authors of the article. Likewise, the authors will never know the name and institution of the peer reviewers. Obviously, at an editorial level, we, we will know both those things. Uh, but the reviewers, we ask them to review the article, being very, I suppose, objective about how they review it, considering its fit for the journal, 
giving any comments or suggestions on what might improve the journal for the readership. If they do have any concerns over any of the content, if it's lacking clarity, if there's any ethical dilemmas, if they're concerned about any of the analysis in it, to flag those things. And then we hope that we get each paper is reviewed by two reviewers, that we get two high quality reviews they go back to the authors then hopefully and there's an opportunity then for the authors to respond to those reviews and hopefully improve their work uh, and and that's the whole principle of the peer review process so no you don't have to be to you know have a phd you don't have to be a full-time academic many of our reviewers for the journal are full-time clinicians they're experts in their area they you don't have to be a consultant practitioner you know we want some we, we want people from all areas so, you know, we want people from treatment planning to LINAC to the MR LINAC with expertise in those areas, people in MRI, CT, ultrasound, general radiography, people wouldn't. So we're always looking for new reviewers. And what we'll always try and do if we have a new reviewer and we know they're new, we'll try and pair them up with a more experienced reviewer. Now, they won't collaborate together on the review, but at least, you know, it, it's an opportunity then they will have sight of the review when it goes to the next phase. So the novice reviewer, and usually they do a fantastic job. It's actually, sometimes it's it's the more experienced reviewers because they get lots of demands for reviews uh, that you know we, we may get a slightly less detail, but a, still a very valuable review as well. So we're always looking for new reviewers if anyone out there is interested. Thank you. Through, so when we had a previous guest, Dr. Richard Simcock, he talked about how important kind of research was through COVID. I suppose from your diagnostic side, we wouldn't normally have seen that from a therapeutic angle. How was it through the pandemic kind of getting research through, especially when CT, you know, x-rays, etc. was really important for diagnosis? Yeah, I, I think personally, I was fortunate that much of the research studies I was involved with were not at a critical phase of collecting clinical imaging data as well. So personally, I wasn't as impacted as some colleagues. A lot of studies had to be paused. You know, things were thrown up in the air. I mean, I mentioned some of those funded projects, you know, the three European funded projects earlier on. All three of them were granted extensions by the European Commission because of the impact of COVID. Because while my work directly might have been impacted, other parts of those consortia, the, the work may have been uh, impacted as well. So, so it has been a challenge and things are getting back to normal now as well. But at the same time, most scientific journals across all areas of healthcare saw a huge increase in the number of articles being submitted during the course of the pandemic. So we saw in the radiography journal, not quite, but almost a doubling in the number of articles submitted in the first year of the pandemic compared to the pre prior year as well. Now, what does that mean? Do you know, like I, I think a lot of it was COVID focused research. You know, there's a lot of, we, the whole world was learning about COVID uh, and not just on, I suppose, how CT and how radiography is being used to diagnose it, but I suppose how uh, radiotherapy is being performed on patients, you know, in, in the COVID scenario. So we, there's been opportunities for new areas of research. The pandemic has impacted us all. Um, it impacted those working full-time clinicians, those of us in academia with campuses moving offline, moving online, sorry, uh, and it's impacted our students. So a lot of the research has been in that area, but also we see, saw growth in what would have been the more routine, the pre-COVID research as well. 
So that has gone up there. And I suppose a lot of journals are looking at it now and it's dropped down slightly where we are at the moment. But actually, the levels are still much higher of submissions than they were pre-COVID. So something as funny has happened during COVID when it comes to research. Certain studies have, you know, slowed down and been delayed. But then there's been a lot of other activity there as well, you know. So so it's it, it's been a funny one. And I think we're still going to see a lot of COVID-related research articles being published for a few years, particularly, unfortunately, with long COVID. But also in terms of education, the impact it has had on staff and students. I think we're all reflecting in education now on how we teach. You know, we don't want to be in the situation that we're full-time teaching remotely. But we've learned a huge amount of as educators on how we teach, how we assess. So I think our practice is going to change. And of course, we hope that will inform the evidence base and we'll see more uh, research being published in those areas. I certainly think COVID, because of the nature of it, allowed more collaboration. So, you know, for people that you wouldn't necessarily have had those interactions with previously, you were kind of asked to be part of projects or publications that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily have been sought to get involved in. Mm. And from that perspective, it's been amazing at increasing people's confidence because I definitely speak from a a researcher's perspective in, in kind of doubting my capabilities, even as an academic, and having that imposter syndrome of, oh, you know, is this good enough mm. quality research? That never goes away, by the way. So It, doesn't. it doesn't, no. <laughs> um, but I think from that perspective, just increasing people's confidence is really important and not to be underestimated for them to then go on and pursue their own um, publications and their own research. I think it, it's been a really positive Absolutely. move. So um, we're at the end of the podcast, Jonathan, but before we go, we'd love you to just give the audience some top tips. So you've you've kind of given mm. lots throughout the podcast, but is there anything pertinent that you'd love people to go away thinking about? Well, I suppose, first of all, not just for any radiographers out there, but I suppose any uh, health professionals out there who are considering an academic career as well, um, uh, I, I suppose my advice to them would be it you know it, it, it can be a fun, it, it can open up so many opportunities as well and I've been very fortunate timing has been I've been fortunate with timing I've been fortunate with having working with great colleagues and learning from lots of great colleagues so I suppose if, if you work hard you put yourself forward for opportunities you seek good mentorship and good mentorship may not be available in your institution but my experience of healthcare professionals in general and particularly obviously the radiography community is there are a lot of people out there that are very generous with their time and their expertise as well so maybe look outside your organization for a mentor that you feel aligns with where you want to go as well it's not that you're betraying your institution they may not always be able to accommodate to you and provide but I'm I knowing most people I've had the pleasure of working with you very rarely get a straight no you know they'll, they'll give you some advice they might point you to another colleague as well um so so that's one thing just to mention in terms of um, our patients, whether they're patients undergoing diagnostic procedures or, or therapeutic procedures, Joan, just to reassure them, like radiographers right across Europe are, you know, highly skilled, you know, generally very well trained, you know, dedicated to patient care as well. And, and just to encourage patients to ask questions of the radiographers uh, that, that, that they meet, 
don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, that conversation is very important uh, as well. Uh, and really what radiographers want is for you as patients to have the best possible experience. Um, for any students out there, and I'm conscious a lot of your fo- the followers of the podcast series are students as well, again, from different professions. But radiography, whether it's therapeutic or diagnostic, it, it, it's a fantastic career opportunity. Whether you just want to work clinically or it, it gives you so many opportunities, opportunities to travel, to travel the world and work around the world as well. Opportunities to engage in research at any scale small local research or major international studies as well. There's a place there uh, for everyone as well. And there's lots of diverse opportunities available for radiography. So I'd encourage everyone, anyone who's considering a career, if they haven't yet made that step to a university degree, to consider radiography, um, diagnostic or therapeutic as well. Lots of opportunities there as well. And you don't have to be an expert at physics, which is you know one of the first things we're always asked by uh, prospective uh, students as well. And, and then maybe finally, a, a tip to to other professionals and, and, and maybe radiographers, first of all, going back to our conversation about what we call ourselves, you know, just hopefully there can be agreement at a national level that everyone in that country is using the same title as well. And I look at the fantastic Hello, My Name is campaign as well using that we should all be using that likewise for me and I'm, I'm not working clinically anymore myself but it applies to what i do when i meet people when i meet the public when i meet collaborators you know being proud of your profession telling people who you are and telling them your profession as well and, and not being fearful even in the academic setting you know thinking oh well these are all radiologists and radiation oncologists and they're all professors you know that you know I'll introduce myself, but I won't tell them I'm a radiographer. Don't, don't, don't devalue your profession as well. Be proud of your profession. And that helps with people from outside or professionals uh, outside radiography as well. You know, it, it helps grow that respect, you know, that collegiality as well. You know, everyone knows the nursing team, the medical team, um, you know, the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist. But, you know, we're part of that multidisciplinary team. So for others, recognize the radiographers once we agree on what we're going to call ourselves. Uh, and we, remember, we are a valuable part of that uh, multidisciplinary team as well. We want to work with you. We hope you want to work with us. Again, there's lots of opportunities in modern healthcare for shared tasks, shared roles. So we're working more closely with other professional groups. You know, We can get some fantastic new experiences of radiographers, but also others can as well. So I suppose they're just uh, a few things targeting a few different groups, a few messages. Oh, they're amazing. And I'm so glad you ended on that one, Jonathan, because anyone who knows me knows I constantly bleat on about kind of promoting our professions um, and being proud of who we are, whether that's at a dinner party or at a conference speech. It's so important. So thank you again, Jonathan, so much uh, for joining us. Um, Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and David Jolka Anderson. Head over to our YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. And if you're utilising the podcast for CPD, purposes consider the reflective questions posted alongside it we've also again share with you the resources and literature that we've discussed and to receive your accredited CPD system that we need to be thank you so our next guest feature